This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What up, listener? We wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this Blue Wire podcast. Be sure to show your support to this pod by subscribing and dropping a five-star review on iTunes, a follow on Spotify, or the appropriate dap for any other platform you might be listening on. And if you're enjoying this show, chances are you'll like one of our 75 other sports podcasts. Find more shows you'll love at BlueWirePods.com. Thanks again for listening, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hey, hi, hello, what up, Hardwood Knox listeners? It is trade deadline recap time. I have brought in Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes. Uh, He's a national NBA columnist over there, also a good friend of mine. We've been working together for almost a decade. Uh, He's an awesome NBA mind. Follow him on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. We're going to go through just about every deal, talk about winners, losers, the impact this trade deadline has on 2020 free agency, talk about some teams that didn't make moves. We're going to see how this impacted the race for number two in the East and number eight in the West. A lot of stuff to get to. Before we do start, though, the usual housekeeping notes, please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Hardwood Knox on iTunes. You can follow us wherever else you're getting your podcast, rate and review us there. If it's Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all that good stuff. Still, if you could also go to iTunes and throw us a rating, write a review, subscribe as well, download our podcast. That's the best way to help us, especially now that we are going to be pumping out a lot more content with our semi-daily mailbags. Um, those could be in a little bit of flux. Next week, we are transitioning to a new uh, podcast host, and that means there might not be an episode on t- Monday, but we'll be getting right back at it by Tuesday the latest. I believe um, the best way to help us out there is to participate in those mailbags when we solicit questions, and then also to download the episodes, continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us. We're really trying to put in a lot of work to be among the best league-wide podcasts out there, and, and we believe that we are. We, we feel like we do a good job of blending statistical analysis, talking about what we see, talking about transactions, talking about the players' off-court stuff, um, the playoffs, not just the big markets, but the smaller markets too. And we like to think that there's a little bit of personality here as well, even if people don't always love us for it. Follow our YouTube channel. Also, just go to youtube.com. Please search Hardwood Knox. We'll be there. Subscribe, like our videos that will be thrown up with every podcast we record, except the mailbags. Those will not be going on YouTube unless there's a greater demand for it. Follow Hardwood Knox on Twitter as well, at Hardwood Knox. I am at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy on Twitter, at Andrew D. Bailey. And also follow at Blue Wire Pods. Uh, please don't make me say this for nothing. I'm running the account over there, so if you throw us a follow, that, that really helps us out, and that brand is growing. We'd love you to be a part of it. Last but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsor for this week, sportsbetting.ag. You will hear their ad read in just a few minutes. Um, thank you to them for making this Hardwood Knox episode possible. Now, let's get to talk some NBA 2020 trade deadline with Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes. Grant, 
How are you doing on this trade deadline night? Are you is your sanity intact? It's pretty intact. Uh, thank you for having me back. I would say that I am not doing as well as Andre Iguodala because nobody is. Um, but <laughs> I'm doing better than let's see than Knicks fans because it wasn't a trade. But Dolan's not going to sell the team, and he said that in a press release, which is the. The, the type of thing you only say when you should definitely be selling the team. That's actually, so I'm right in the middle of those. That's actually worth talking about before we get into. We will be talking about basically all of the trades and reacting to them. But the Knicks firing team president Steve Mills, it was about 51 hours before the trade deadline. That's that's peak Knicks. Everyone was like, well, hey, they got rid of the guy that shouldn't have been there. That's just not a move that you make so close to the trade deadline. And then they hired a new team president in Leon Rose. Um, the day of the trade deadline, it was like it was like four or five hours out from the trade deadline, and then the statement was just the need to clarify: I am not selling. I was almost waiting for it to end, and we still have no interest in signing Richard Jefferson or something. <laughs> like that. Yeah, it's very perfect. It's it's very like it is. It is a uh, really. I mean, all that stuff is crazy, but but the the press release to me is just so on brand in in like the worst possible way, just because. Like no other organization does that. It, it just doesn't happen. Um, but the Knicks, it's like, yeah, that's about right. They would, you know, Dolan would allow a chant from the home fans to affect him enough um, to release a statement just to say that he's not selling the team, which is like the least reassuring reassurance that has ever been offered by anyone in history. I just, and I don't know what to think of the hire itself because um, Leon Rose, I, I don't, he's never, he doesn't have basketball executive experience. I know that the whole newfound rage is, um, yeah. these agent types and he's bringing, um, you know, in quotes, worldwide West with him, William Wesley. That's, I mean, that's interesting. They have this Rolodex of clients that includes Devin Booker and, and bead and Carl Anthony Towns and Chris Paul. It's, it's going to be great when the Knicks get fined for tampering with Colin Sexton though. That's going to be the offshoot <laughs> of all this. I don't, I, my one thing. I would wonder is, do you think they had to get concrete signals that Masai had no interest in coming to New York, right? Because otherwise, why do you make this decision now? Oh, for sure. For sure. Because like that, I mean, obvious for obvious reasons, that's the guy that you would target if you wanted to turn something around. Even if I'm skeptical that had Ujiri gone to New York, he would have been able to kind of operate the same way as he has in Toronto and, and Denver before that. But but yeah, like there's no way that you do this unless you've been flatly told no. Your your number one option has no interest. Um, or you know maybe I, I hope Ujiri just made completely ridiculous demands. Just you know I want like a fleet of you know <laughs> town cars to take me everywhere I go, and I want an eighty percent stake in MSG. I just hope he asks for the world, just because why not? You know you never know. Yeah, I mean if if they didn't wait for him or either way maybe James Dolan should just get a ring the next time the Raptors win a title because I just feel like he's owed something for their success it's very very thoughtful of you you want to talk about you want to talk about trades should yeah, we talk about you, trades where do you want to start do we want to is it do we start with the Capella deal because it feels like there's so many things that were like linked to that or, or do we just go right to D'Lo to Minnesota um you know what I want to do let's do the Capella deal it was the biggest it was the first big one and definitely the biggest in I don't know, remember how many years several several years um since like the Ewing trade years ago I think um so that probably deserves some attention 
Um, Anytime if, there's a four team trade, I do a victory lap for coming up with four team trade ideas. <laughs> and, and these four teamers only happen like once every six years or something. Yeah, it, val- it validates you going that deep into the weeds because you can say, look, it can actually happen once in a while. Um, to rehash I don't it, know. I guess Atlanta receives Clint Capella and Nene, who they re- waived. Denver received Kata Bates Jop, Gerald Green, Shabazz Napier, who they've since traded to Washington for Jordan McRae. Noah Vonley and Houston's 2020 first round pick. Houston received Jordan Bell, who they've since traded to Memphis for Bruno Caboclo, Robert Covington, Golden State's, <clears throat> excuse me, 2024 second round pick. That comes via the Hawks. And then Minnesota uh, receives Malik Beasley, Juan Hernan Gomez, Evan Turner, Jared Vanderbilt, and Brooklyn's 2020 first round pick, lottery protected via Atlanta. So. First of all, I'm glad you are uh, have that information handy because I'm never going to keep all that straight. But do you? Let me ask you first: is is there a team of those four for whom you really just straight up don't like this deal? Is there a team that you think clearly like shouldn't have done this or came out by far the worst or just objectively poorly? No, I think the one argument might have been Minnesota at the beginning, uh, at least when it first happened, because. Yes, you're getting a first-round pick, and I even like Jared Vanderbilt, but at first glance, it sort of felt like they underplayed their hand a bit because of the dearth of sellers, and it's cool that you have Juan Hernan Gomez and Malik Beasley, but they're going into restricted free agency, and what if it costs real money to keep them? You're kind of messing with your cap sheet, but then given what happened kind of at the trade deadline where it became clear that um, teams, Memphis, Cleveland, are just punting on cap space this summer, it makes it a lot easier to to keep those guys. And so I think it's easier to like in that context. And then also now that you have D'Angelo Russell, who I'm sure we'll get to that trade next, it's just not that they're more all in on the present. It just makes it, they feel like with Towns and Russell, they're better built to do something semi-special sooner than if it was Towns and Wiggins. And so I think if Malik Beasley pans out and it takes more than, you know, 10 or 12 million to keep him per year, I don't think it will now, but if it does, you can make that move and not feel like it kind of is counterintuitive to your timeline. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, the reason I asked was because I, I don't have a team, even initially, because usually you you kind of blanch it at, you know, one or two of the teams involved in something this big. But I really, you know, I think the cap space thing really has changed the calculus on a lot of these deals, meaning, you know, that the fact that there's just not going to be that much out there this summer. Um, to, to me, I think... You know, I, I think Atlanta is probably I could talk myself into or out of this, but I, I like this for Atlanta just because, like, granted, one of the things I think we learned uh, at this deadline was that the value of centers continues to decline. And so by taking on Clint Capella, the Hawks are kind of running counter to that trend because um, Capella's you know, relatively cheap for a for a starting caliber center, I guess. Um, but he's not cheap, you know, full stop. So you're committing to, and you're adding Dwayne Dedman's money on there too in a separate trade. So you're paying, I think, you know, around 30 million bucks next year for a couple of conventional-ish centers, even though Dedman has some stretch. But to me, like you gave up, if you're the Hawks, a, a first rounder uh, that, you know, maybe's in the teens somewhere, assuming it conveys. And I just don't feel like you're going to recoup that value in the draft or value equal to what you're going to get from Capella in the draft. So... Like, yeah, it's a position that's out of favor, um, it, but but at the same time, like, give Trey Young the lob threat, shore up an interior defense that is horrible, force John Collins to prove he can shoot the ball and space out or just 
punt on him because he's not oh, going to be able to. That's my, yeah, like, I'm, I'm like certain now that they're not. I like John Collins, but I just don't see a Capella Collins front court working long term. And you know what? They're not committed financially to Collins yet. So this is the timing is great. Like if you'd already bought into Collins, you right. couldn't yet. But but hypothetically, had they been invested to a greater degree um, beyond his rookie scale deal, then this is a little sketchier. But but like I, I like it as a hey, prove it, John. Like I, I like it as a let's see if you can shoot threes and be more of like a stretchy four. Um, and because you ain't a five, especially defensively. So I, I like it kind of on, you know, across the board. I, I, I don't know. Um, what about the other, who are we, we haven't discussed, you know, the rocket side so much, uh, or, or Denver's, but, but do you have thoughts on either of those two teams or more on Capella to the Hawks? I think I just echo basically everything you said about the Hawks there. Maybe there's a, I think some people were concerned about the offensive fit with Collins and Capella. I'm a little bit higher there. Maybe I'm just more confident in his shot. And there've been moments where it shows that he can put the ball on the floor. I just think for the money that Capella's owed, $51.3 million over three years, even if you end up extending and keeping John Collins, the situation is at least navigable. Yeah. And so that, that's the win there, to only give up one first-round pick and really nothing else of, of value unless you think Golden State's second-rounder in 2024 is going to be great. Uh, I think that's a solid move. For Denver, I was it took me a while to process for Denver when I, I didn't, when the news first came out, I don't think it was clear that they were getting a first round pick. And I'm a Jared Vanderbilt guy just for the amount of ground that he can cover for what he's capable of doing on the glass. But then when you look at it more, he was just never going to see the floor unless no. you thought that Paul Millsap and Jeremy Grant, who I think is a player option for this summer, were both leaving in the off season. Like the, and with Michael Porter Jr.'s emergence, even then, if you want MPJ to be your small ball four, it would have been tough for Vanderbilt to get on the court. And so now you get a first round pick for him, yes, you lose him, but he didn't fill a position of need at this point. And now uh, you don't have to worry about paying Malik Beasley or Juan Hernan Gomez. And you've essentially consolidated that into a first-round pick that you can then use to um, put in trades this summer if you decide to consolidate some of your other talent. And that helps. It's not even – it could happen before the draft now too because the big thing was they couldn't trade their 2021 pick. And now that they have Houston's – uh, they can trade their 2021 pick before the draft, I believe. It still makes sense to wait until after, just so that it doesn't whatever matter. So I, I like that for them. And and for Houston, I think the way I framed it is this. They treated Robert Covington as the best player being moved in this deal because you gave up Capella and a first-round pick. Yeah. I think you can make an argument that he they're, they're at least equal in value, but that Rocco is going to be more valuable to you in a playoff series. And so you justify it that way. That being said... They've won the minutes where they play with a small ball center. The defense has been atrocious during that time. Is it going to get any better with Kabaklo or maybe even Covington playing some five? I don't know. Do they get someone on the buyout market who's more suited to play the five? Maybe. This is one of those deals where I think you can go, it's a B, B plus, because I respect that the Rockets are sort of sticking to their principles, but we're not going to know the full extent of whether it was a success or, or a miss or maybe just a dead even move until you get to the playoffs and see what they look like. Yeah, I, the only thing I'd add, I, I agree with that. I think a, a good way to view this is to keep in mind that you know players' values are not static, whether that's from team to team, obviously, because Covington fits what the Rockets want to do now better than he fits another team, hypothetically, and Capella fits worse because they're leaning <laughs> small. But like even year to year, because like last year and years in years past, Capella's threat as as a lob guy really mattered because the Rockets ran a lot of pick and roll, relatively speaking. And this year, they just don't run any. So Capella's kind of really become a one-way player who offensive rebounds and you know gets a Cuts, bunch of garbage yeah. buckets. 
So like his value this year versus last year is lower to Houston too, but his value is much higher to the Hawks who need a pick and roll threat, a lob threat or another lob threat for, for Trey young um, who can defend. So, you know, it, it, there was some shock. I think that like, like you said, that, that the Rockets gave up a, a young starting center who fits on a lot of teams on a good deal and gave up a pick too. But, you know, it's just guys' values change and it depends on how a team is playing and how they want to play going forward. And whether you think the Rockets are wise to do this extreme small ball thing or not, um, they made a move that fit in line with that theory. Of course, though, you have to throw in the luxury tax concerns that I think still motivate almost everything Houston does. Yeah, they ducked far beneath right. the luxury tax. I mean, I, I guess yeah. they could still, if there's a bigger name that gets bought out, they could make a larger offer since I think they still have most of their mid-level remaining. Uh, I should have my salary cap sheet up for that. I would, this is not to move it to a smaller trade, but by giving up Jordan Bell for Bruno Caboclo, along with a second-round pick that you're sending to uh, Memphis, you then have to expect that the Rockets are going to play Bruno Caboclo, right? Yeah, I do. Oh, I mean, he he came up, I think he played for the Rio Grande Valley and was playing center there uh, before the Grizzlies signed him. So I think they are comfortable with him. And I think, you know, the two years away from being two years away thing is is pretty played out. But like, you know, maybe this is the time and the place for him to to make some small difference. I don't know. But I agree. I think they do intend to have him, you know, actually go out there in some form. On a tangential note to that, uh, that was one of the more bizarre pick commitments, a 2023 second round pick swap, top 32 protected going to Memphis. So it's like far enough down the pipeline where James Harden, I think that's his age 33 season where Memphis is like, yeah, why not take a flyer on that? And mm-hmm. then Kabakla wasn't going to do anything for you anyway. They, kind of, I know he was like kind of came on towards the end of last year, but they, he hasn't been really a huge factor for them this season. I want to see Jordan Bell, Brandon Clark, and John Morant on the court at the same time, though, because I think that is like a pretty good trampoline trio, just in terms of guys who might be able to jump out of the building. For sure. Although I will caution you as a close observer of of uh, observer of Jordan Bell for a couple years that uh, he will, in fact, jump high. But you know, for every one of those, he's going to botch a defensive assignment four or five times. So not sure how much time he's going to see in Memphis unless that changes. We're now going to take a quick break to tell you about our brand new sponsor, Bet Online. Missed your chance to bet on the Chiefs Niners in the Super Bowl? Fear not, listener. Blue Wire is excited to be partnering with Bet Online to help you win big no matter the time of year. With March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Baseball's opening day right around the corner, Bet Online has you covered for all your latest news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Plus, it's never too early to lay down your future bet for Super Bowl 2021. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. We signed up. It's super easy. And if you're already making wagers, it's a fantastic way to support this podcast. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word when you sign up at betonline.ag. Bring your best bets home with BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. That's probably a good segue into Jordan Bell's former team, the Golden yeah. State Warriors. Man. They traded D'Angelo Russell to Minnesota and got Andrew Wiggins back. The full details of the trade. Golden State is getting Andrew Wiggins, a 2021 first-round pick for Minnesota, top three protected, and a 2022 second-round pick. Minnesota is getting Jacob Evans, D'Angelo Russell, and Omari Spellman. What in the actual hell did you make of this trade? 
So my first thought is I understand the theory of it. Just I, well, I don't think we need to justify it from Minnesota side, right? I think they they got a, a younger, cheaper, better player uh, that fits what they need that Carl Anthony Towns likes. Like kind of end of story for me, right? And and I think that's probably worth the 2021 first. The second I just sort of don't care about. And you and um, they hedge too against being really bad. The bet here is still right. that they think they're not going to send, let's say, a top seven pick but you at least know you don't have to send a top three pick in 2021 at least. Yeah. So from, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but from Minnesota side, it's yeah, of course they want, they've wanted Russell forever. That's been no secret. They got him. They got off of the worst contract on their team. Um, and yeah, it cost them a little bit, but I just, it's a, it's a win for them for the Warriors. To me, the, the theory of Wiggins makes sense. And you know, everybody has no doubt already come across this. It's like, well, Russell's duplicative with Curry. If you'd gone forward with Russell as a key piece, Curry would have had significant defensive responsibilities. In theory, Wiggins alleviates those. He's a better positional fit. Um, he's got this untapped potential that a change of scenery could you know, turn him into someone who justifies this contract, all this other stuff. Um, I'm very skeptical about that. I just think I think there's there's something to be said for you know getting out of Minnesota and getting a fresh start. But you know, five plus years into a career, I think we sort of know that Wiggins is just a guy. Um, and he's been better this year in some important respects. But I think the best case scenario from the Warriors perspective is you're paying 90 million, whatever dollars over the next three full seasons for a guy that tops out as your third option. Um, and so I'm not convinced that Wiggins and this additional pick uh, is more valuable than Russell and the Warriors' own pick, which is sort of the trade ship that the big trade ships that they had prior to this deal. Um, you could make the case that they've got an additional pick now, and Wiggins' salary is bigger, so that's easier to match another really big, tra- you know, trade piece if they go that route. Um, but I just have a hard time getting past the idea that they the Warriors sold too soon on Russell. I think potentially there was better value had they waited. Um, but, you know, I understand the theory. I just, I think in practice, it, it feels like a little bit of a mistake to me. Yeah, I'm with you. I killed them in the Bleacher Reports trade grades. I gave them a D or a D plus. I don't have it in front of me. I don't, I, look, I know Russell's like kind of this divisive player. And I would say he's closer to a top 50 player than a top 25 guy. But, I, and, and look, there's definitely complications when you're dealing non-stars on max contracts. But that only gets more complicated with Wiggins. He's yeah. In sum, this has been one of his better years. He's been terrible of late, but this has been one of his better years. I think we can safely say, at least over the past couple of seasons. He still ranks 367 out of 494 in luck-adjusted RAPM. And so, like, this hasn't been an average NBA player this year. He's a below-average NBA player in general. I guess you can bank on Golden State's extra space being good for him when, when Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry are both on the court. But he hasn't really shown that he can be this huge asset without the ball in his hands either. And you still want Draymond Green, Stephen Curry to get their own touches. Uh, I, I don't know what makes them think they can look at Andrew Wiggins and say, well, well, sticking him off the ball makes a lot more sense than using D'Angelo Russell off the ball. I guess maybe a little bit more, um, particularly when you look at Wiggins' size. Maybe you could have him you know, work as more, just be a better screener and things along those lines defensively he should be better just by virtue of his physical tools and size but if you put him at power forward i know some people even talk about maybe you put him at small ball five i just you're probably going to get killed and i'm with you i don't think that wiggins and these two first round picks that they now have their own and then minnesota's in 2021 is 
more valuable or even equally valuable at this moment to just Russell and their own pick. I don't know who would have came on the market where they could make that either version of that offer to over the summer, but I think it would have been worth waiting because I don't know that I – mean, would this package have been gone in the offseason? Right. In no, it would have been there. Yeah. It would have been there. The thing is, like – certainly there's urgency on the Warriors side because they've got this aging core and, you know, maybe they felt that this was the time they needed to make the deal. To me, there was more urgency to do this on Minnesota side because the season spiraling out of control. Carl Anthony Towns is pissed off. You are running up against like just creating this rift that cannot be bridged, you know, between superstar and team if you don't go get Russell. And I feel like the Warriors maybe could have squeezed. It's easy to say not being on the phone call or in the room, but it seems like if they had to do it now, um, the urgency was more on Minnesota's side and Minnesota came away with a better deal. Um, So it, it, it troubles me there. And like, just to close the book on Wiggins, I think that if you're, if you believe that he's going to be a great fit and productive and just sort of, you know, work, in, in a meaningful way with the Warriors, what you're doing is ignoring five years of facts of how he's played and sort of reverting to what his draft outlook was, which is a little low energy, all the tools in the world, super high ceiling, um, but potentially kind of just, you know, has a, has a habit of disappearing and not making a difference. And that seems like a crazy way to approach it because you do have a half decade saying, like, in fact, his low end outcome is sort of what we're looking at. So so it's a real tough sell for me from the Warriors perspective. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the other part of all this. This is year six of the Andrew Wiggins experience. Right. At some point, he just is what he is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so that's going to be way interesting to monitor. And then I don't know, you know, perception's not going to get better, I would think, this year if he struggles when they don't have Curry or Clay Thompson on the floor. Like, that's something where, again, that the optics could just sort of spiral out of control. And, you know, Curry's supposed to come back in March, but what if that fit is all of a sudden just not great? And so now you're going into next season with sort of this pessimistic taste in your mouth organizationally. And I just don't... This is is a kind of a flex on Golden State's part because I'm not saying... They didn't treat Andrew Wiggins as an asset, but they didn't treat D'Angelo Russell as an asset either. It's just, it's very weird. Yeah, well, and and just just to add to your point, so look, the Warriors are without Russell, Alec Burks, and Glenn Robinson the third now because they traded those last two guys. Um, and man, that's a lot of the the usage on offense that's just gone. And so, if you were hoping to get a sense of what Wiggins might look like in a low usage role, you will not see that the rest of this year. If he's out there, I mean, we could see he might average thirty a game. But, I mean, he's going to be the only, only offensive option on that team, and it's going to get ugly um, from an efficiency standpoint. So, like, if you're waiting for, you know, a revelation or kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel on the Wiggins deal, you are going to see it until next year. They're going to go through this season and not really learn all that much about how he'll fit, whether Curry comes back or not. And, and you know, I don't think he should play. I think it looks like he's going to play in March, but I don't understand. I don't see the point. <laughs> Certainly now I don't because now you're not wondering about – his fit with D'Angelo Russell to make a right. decision over the summer. You, you're going to be locked into Wiggins. I don't know what Wiggins would have to do to be treated even as anything close to an, an even asset this offseason. I just don't think it's it's possible. The next trade to get into, Andre Godala, not to one of the Los Angeles teams, but the Miami Heat. Talk about a slow drip in terms of reporting. This was Andre Godala was not just going to the Heat, but agreed to an extension on Wednesday night. 
before the Thursday deadline. And we still didn't have the terms of the trade until I think it was like noon, at least Eastern time, three hours before <laughs> the trade deadline. The, the trade ended up being a three-teamer, just not with the Oklahoma City Thunder and Daniel Gallinari. It was instead the Memphis Grizzlies getting Gorgie Jang, Dion Waiters, who it looks like they're going to waive, Justice Winslow, and then the Miami Heat received Jay Crowder, Andre Godala, Solomon Hill, and the Minnesota Timberwolves received James Johnson. The one thing I want to say before throwing it to you is it is absolutely mind-boggling to me that the Heat were able to get three of the four best players in this deal without giving up a pick. Well, and they cut like 40-some-odd million in next year's salary, right? Or, or like they, they saved money in the bargain by getting off of Johnson uh, and Waiters. So I just... Uh, I, I mean, I, look, I get that Memphis valued Winslow a lot um, and maybe there was just nothing better out there for Iguodala. But but yeah, like, you know, Iguodala to me is one of the biggest winners of the deadline just because who at 36 gets a $30 million extension and gets to play sort of wherever he wants. But the Heat just kind of smoked this deal, too, in my opinion, overall. I, I don't I don't know how you feel, but um, I think there's room, there's been pushback already, but there's definitely room to criticize Memphis for, for how it came out of this one. Yeah. So they took on $29.6 million in salary, uh, without Justice Winslow in de- I don't even want to call it dead money. Cause now they have Jang, but so waiters and Dang um, adds $29.6 million in salary to next season relative to Igadala, Solomon Hill and Jay Crowder. That's a lot of flexibility to relinquish just for for Justice Winslow. You have to be extremely confident in his health, and he's only played in one game since Christmas at this point, and his potential to build off last season's uh, breakout. Uh, sort of on the flip side, though, I kind of respect what Memphis did because they've they've punted on cap space entirely now. When you add yeah. the Dylan Brooks extension, plus Winslow's salary, plus Jang, plus Dion Waiters, uh, they've added $54 million to, to next season's ledger. That's a steep opportunity cost in a vacuum, at the same time, where was that cap space going to Memphis? They're not a free agent destination, and this would not have been the summer to broker another Iguodala-type trade where they're getting a first-round pick to take on bad salary because there aren't free agents out there um, that teams are going to want to go to all that trouble to sign. All of that said, I would have felt a lot better had they ended up with Kelly Olynyk or Myers Leonard instead of Jang, one of Jang, Johnson, or Waiters. It just seems like that would have been the better middle ground for them. Uh, again, that being said, though, if if they're that high on just these Winslow, kind of more power to them. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you mentioned the the punting on cap space because that was kind of a theme. Um, there, there were only, there's really like a half dozen that teams that came into the deadline uh, that, that figured to have, you know, significant 2020 cap space. And you mentioned the Grizzlies decided that, well, we're just better off adding talent now than spending on a, a kind of a weak market. The Hawks kind of did the same thing and the Cavs did kind of the same thing. So now, um, you know, this idea of I don't know if it's interesting to think about. I don't know if this makes the few teams with cap space now like sort of more powerful or if it's just an indication that like this is not a time you want to have that kind of power because it's just not there's just not a lot out there in 2020. And you know, maybe maybe the spending should have happened now for all these teams as opposed to waiting for for kind of a weird, potentially stagnant free agent market. It's interesting to think about how much the trade deadline can reflect sort of what's going to happen four or five months from now. But but I think we really did see that this year. Yeah, it's going to be the player options this year are going to be fascinating when you look at uh, DeMar DeRozan. Gordon Hayward has a player option. Even Andre Drummond's player option at this point. I'm sure we'll get to him in a second. And then the guys who are going to be free agents 
who are good, but like, what are they going to get paid? Danilo Gallinari, uh, you know, is, is he going to be a signed trade candidate with Oklahoma city? Probably because the, the few teams that have money now are not really on Gallo's timeline. And then he's right. not, he's better than a mid-level free agent though. You're not going to get him for 10 million a year. I wouldn't think so. No stuff, stuff like that is truly fascinating. I think it's also why the heat can get away with paying the, please don't go to the warriors tax with Iguodala um, on that $15 million salary, because you can decline his team option for the 2021 summer. And then next year, it's, yeah, you, you've overpaid him, but you also saved close to $14 million by signing him, but also getting rid of Waiters and Johnson. And at least he is someone who, even if his ball handling and just be like floor general quality doesn't carry over, he's going to help you defensively. Yeah, I think he'll make a difference. I mean, there's a chance that he's just washed. I mean, that happens to guys that, you know, he, he that are at this age, but... And, and that have been out this long and that made five straight finals runs. I mean, the, the mile, you know, that's a tough, tough thing, but he should matter. I think just to, to get on the free agency thing, like I I'm wondering, and well, this is a tangent again, cause why not? Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if what we're going to see is the limited number of free agents unrestricted in particular, um, that kind of look at this landscape this summer and say like, uh, just to pick someone out of the air, Fred Van Vliet, for example, like, you see that you could go maybe get really paid in New York or Detroit now since they got off Drummond or sort of wherever these, you know, these, these teams that are, that have cap space that aren't any good. Or do you just try to get like 80% of your market value and stay in Toronto? Like, I think this could potentially push a lot of guys to take deals that are below market value to stay where they are. Or, or maybe, maybe we see winning teams just make these MLEs, stretch way beyond what they're supposed to because the alternative is to go play for the Knicks for, you know, the, the, for a couple of years and, and get a bunch of money. But is that worth it? I don't know. It's just something I was thinking of as, as all these teams were dumping all their cap space. It's hard to know what to make of it too, because I would even say, does it incentivize them to take just a short term deal wherever they are? Mm. And maybe that mm-hmm. team, even if they don't want to keep them, is hoping they turn into a trade asset. I, I, I honestly have, have no idea, but you're, you're absolutely right. And so it's, and then waiting, though, like kicking the can and signing that one-year deal, I don't know how much good that ends up doing you because if you fall off even a little bit, or even if you don't, now you're heading into a free agent market that has uh, technically is slated to have LeBron, Kawhi, Paul George, Giannis, can't forget about him, obviously. Who? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe not all those guys make it to free agency, or maybe their returns to their current teams become fait complete. but if 2021 is going to be such a deep free agency class, you have to wonder if for some of these guys, whether it be by virtue of sign and trade or sucking it up and going to um, the Knicks, I wouldn't say sucking it up and going to the Hawks who will still have max room. That might be a, a team that you're interested in joining, um, but maybe those are the scenarios that you just latch onto or staying where you are because you know, there's not going to be much else out there. or You're going to be such a small fish in a big sea in 2021. Right. Um, can we talk about uh, maybe the most surprising trade of the deadline, which, which maybe in hindsight it shouldn't have been, but the Andre Drummond deal. Can you I, give me the particulars on that? Well, I first need to hear your thoughts about Minnesota trading Gorgie Jang to get James Johnson. Oh, well, to I mean, how much time, how much time you got? Uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> can you do it within the, the next two hours? Let's do a separate pod just on that because I, I just have so much to say about that. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing it was like a cost cutting move because Minnesota is currently in the tax after the trade deadline by about uh, per early bird rights, about $1.8 million. And so they can get under that if they waive someone that a team picks up. 
I don't know who that player on their roster is. Uh, so I'm just wondering if they did that because it's, oh, now we're like close to 2 million inside the tax. So there'll be ways for us to duck it. I honestly, I just found it a little bit bizarre because Jang was giving you some defensive pop. Maybe the thinking, he was, maybe the def- maybe the defense, maybe the thinking is, look, if Towns is healthy, there's not going to be a ton of minutes available for him. You don't play them together. And at least we can play James Johnson and Carl Anthony Towns together. Yeah. It could be as simple as just like I keep harping on the value of centers is, is, you know, a, a at least Jang bat- shoots. Yeah, sure. Yeah, a little bit, but I mean, and I think too, you could argue they're trading him at like the height of the value that he's had yeah. in this contract because he did improve quite a bit during the stretch when Towns was out and he sustained some of that. Um, whereas before all that, like he was, you know, kind of, I think widely viewed as having one of the worst contracts in the league. So it may have just have been a situation where let's just do this now. Cause we're not going to get, it's not going to get any better. I do like the, just the focus the Grizzlies have clearly put on locker room presence. Um, you're getting rid of Dion waiters. It seems like, uh, you, you want no part apparently of James Johnson's stoned ass TikTok videos. Um, <laughs> whatever pop, maybe it was an Instagram story that one time. And so you go with Jang, who we know is a, a high character guy, and maybe won't bristle it if the if this season takes a turn for the worst, or you're or they're even worse next year. Just someone that you can have on a rebuilding team without making waves. I I respect Memphis's trade deadline. Not sure if I love it just yet, but I definitely respect it. I like it for the Dylan Brooks extension. That's that's my only clear win for them. Um, but but that's hardly a trade, so I don't know if you is can lump that in. a clear win? I don't think it's a bad deal, but he is he started off the season terrible, and he's just been yeah. a buyer since December and was rewarded with you know, $12 million a year, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a low number, relatively speaking for someone that like, look, if he is just on a hot streak, then yeah, I guess it's questionable, but I, I don't know. He's just, this is probably not the most analytically sound way for me to kind of defend that extension. But whenever I, whenever I watch Brooks, I just can't get over the idea that man, that guy sucks to play against. Like it's just no fun at all because he's kind of one of those, like edge seeking guys that it's, there's a little Chris Paul of like ref baiting. He loves to just run into people. He's super physical. He fouls all the time. Um, but like, I think there's value to that, it, that, you know, you, you want kind of the guy that's just going to scrap, especially if you've got a, a rookie point guard and, and, you know, mostly young team, you know, Brooks isn't old, but I just like sort of that competitive edge and it would be stupid to pay 20 million bucks a year for that. And so far, you know, good three point shooting. Um, but I think at the number they got it at for his age, like they're going to, they've locked him in for age 25, 26, 27 now, um, at sort of below average starter money. And, and to me, I think, I think that's, that's good value. Um, even if the shooting gets back down to, you know, below close to 40%, which it's at right now. That's fair enough. And now would be the time to make those dice rolls because you have Clark, uh, Triple J and Ja all on their rookie scale deals. So you're not paying them market value right now. Yeah, right. Those are the deals you need if you want to turn into something special. You need to have guys locked in way below what they should be making. And I think there's at least potential for that to be the case with Brooks. On to that random trade. That This was the <clears> most <throat> random trade of the trade deadline, right? The Cavs-Pistons deal? I, yeah, it's really weird. I mean, it's weird for so many reasons. So it's Drummond for, uh, you're going to have to get Brandon Knight, John Henson, Coming back from the from the and Cavs a, and, and twenty twenty three second. second round pick, the less favorable of Cleveland's <laughs> or Golden State's. You know what they should start putting uh, in in these uh, less favorable things is like just in parentheses. Who cares? Because clearly, like I don't feel like anyone cares about uh, 
it, it, it just it seems like a throw in. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's weird, right? What What was your first reaction when you saw this? Does Cleveland know that it also has Larry Nash Jr., Kevin Love, and Tristan Thompson on the road? Who refuses, who will not take a buyout because he's a clutch sports client. They don't do that. I mean, at this point, I feel like the chances of him taking one have to increase. They got to be better than they've been for most clutch guys, that's for sure. But I, but yeah, it's crazy. I, I see, I don't know if this was Cleveland like, oh, Andre Drummond made an all-star team two years ago and we can get him for a second round pick, basically. I I sort of get that. And then... At the same time, the ideal scenario for them is that he would opt in, right, to the $28.8 million player option. Because if he opts out, the implication is that you want to keep him, in which case now you're getting in to him for longer-term money. And then this, for the fans' perspective at least, implies that the Cavaliers want to be on this accelerated timeline with Drummond and Kevin Love as their anchors. And that just gets into all some all these sub-mediocrity scenarios. Yeah. That's that's why this is so fascinating because, like you say, if if Cleveland gets whatever Cleveland believes is the best case scenario out of Drummond, whether that's an extension, whether that's he opts in, whether whatever it is, I, I feel like a Drummond. The best case for the Cavs is they sort of become as good as the Pistons, which is just like <laughs> yeah, who is aspiring? Who is aspiring to that? And and it's just it seems bizarre to me. Though I mean, they gave up nothing, so I, I guess it's fine. I just the upside is so hard to see. To me, the the you know I don't know if I feel comfortable saying Detroit or Cleveland won this deal, but I do feel like Drummond lost it because now he's on a worse team. He's real salty about not being told about being traded. He tweeted, "Except like, listen, you've been rumored for all year to be yeah, a trade was, candidate." Uh, so that, maybe he just didn't realize it was to Cleveland. Yeah, which <laughs> which yeah, I get it. That's a shock mean? you yeah. don't want to deal with. But, but like, so he's got the option of, well, I'm in Cleveland for the rest of this year. And then after that, I can opt out and get to a terrible 2020 market where nobody that I want to play for is going to have any money. Or I opt in and I spend another year in Cleveland. And then I'm a free agent in 2021 when centers are probably going to be even less valuable than they are now. And there's a bunch of good players competing for the money on the market. Like, there's just no, there's no, there's no good outcome for Drummond here and so except like all that one of your or your only primary sooner in the suitor in the Hawks got Clint Capella and Dwayne Dedman and so yeah that's we're good now Hawks are good not interested anymore so so it's it's rough for him I, I I mean it's hard to feel bad for someone that just has the option to you know say yes I would like to make a whole bunch of money you know for a bad team again next year but um, that's rough. Uh, it definitely speaks to it's, it's wild. I don't, I'm not a Drummond fan. I think a lot of his numbers are empty and the Pistons have never been very good with him playing a big role, but like, it's kind of wild that the center market is that the league is that out on conventional, you know, rebound and dunk centers. It's, it's crazy that we've, it's trended this way for a long time, but this really is an illustration of just how, how done the league is with that type of player. Right, and I'm I'm like fearful of insulting centers because I don't just want to claim that none of them are valuable, and it's really you know these guys put in a lot of work. You don't want to just uh, belittle their craft. At the same time, now I'm finding myself asking, and I'm I'm not trying to be hot takey here. Where is the team that's going to give Drummond more than the non-taxpayers mid-level exception? Just- Ooh, that is that is a little hot takey, but it's not crazy. That's really interesting. I don't know. I because 
he's got to start, right? It's just, he's got that sort of the all-star pedigree. It's hard for me to imagine him going the Dwight Howard role, you know, several years before he's at the Dwight Howard stage of his career. So that's, that's going to be really tough. I don't know where that money comes from. This is all going to end with him signing a short-term contract with the Knicks because they have all those team options on Gibson and Portis. They could just decline them and now bury Mitchell Robinson with Andre Drummond in front of him. This, this is Mm -hmm. how this all ends. That feels alarmingly on brand to me. What did you think about this from the Pistons' perspective? Because there were people that noted on Twitter, Detroit kind of fucked up because it's like, now you're just a regular bad team. You didn't get anything with which to build around from the Andre Drummond trade. My response to that is because there was nothing out there. If you accepted this deal of cap relief and uh, this distant second-round pick that Unless one, unless both the Warriors and the Cavaliers are bad. Again, both of them have to be bad since they're getting less favorable pick for you to have a fringe first rounder. And you, you so badly didn't want to pay him, even if he opted in or opted out. I, this is another situation where I kind of respect it. They needed to shake things up. I don't know that his contract would have yielded more value uh, over the offseason or next year if he had opted in. I don't think he would have gotten a bunch more in a sign-and-trade. That's been some speculation, too, is maybe Cleveland signed him with the intention of using him as a signed-and-trade asset. It's fine to say that the Pistons should have gotten more or they should have waited and moved him later, but that presupposes there would have been a better deal for him in either of those scenarios, and I don't think you can say that there would have been. Again, this seems like absurdly low value, but if the alternative was the Pistons potentially being tempted to re-sign him should he have opted out because they didn't want to lose him for nothing— I kind of applaud the gall that they showed here by by making the call to move him now for such a lackluster return. Yeah, so I, it it gets kind of simple for me. You you sort of crystallized it. I think I think what this is is the Pistons sort of taking the question of does it make sense to pay Andre Drummond twenty eight point seven million or twenty eight point eight or whatever it is next year uh, on a team that probably won't be any good. Um, or does it make sense to extend him beyond that if he opts out? And do we want that? Do we want either of those outcomes? And I think the answer is just no. So you get what you can. And what you can get is pretty little, as we've seen. But I agree. I just It's just like, just ask you, do you want Andre Drummond on the, on the team at this number? And I think the correct answer is no. And so the Pistons just acted. And the optics maybe aren't great, but, but that's just, you know, you paint yourself into a corner with a deal that probably was too rich when he signed it and this is how you get out of it. So yeah, good on them. I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what they do next too, because th- this doesn't really signal that they're in a rebuild. You still have Blake Griffin. You didn't trade Derek Rose or Markeith Morris, who has a player option. Do they look to bring back Langston Gow? Is this something that they're going to try and reboot quickly? I, I That's going to be, they kept Luke Kennard who's been dealing with knee tendonitis. They were really embedded into the rumor mill and kind of towards the end, in the lead up to the trade deadline, it was Drummond who wasn't generating as much buzz as all those other names except for Griffin, and yet he's the one that they ultimately moved. Yeah, it isn't. Their inactivity is kind of interesting in light of that. I didn't really think about that. Because, you know, Rose, I don't know what Rose could have commanded, but it, it would have been, I don't know, what, what's his value to this team? Like, he's, why do you want him back? If, it, like you say, maybe this rebuild isn't going to be real thorough and, and abrupt. Maybe it's just kind of, maybe the Pistons are going to keep chasing that eighth seed. I don't know. Yeah, they're going to be a team to watch. Uh, the next deal I was going to ask you about, I think it's probably the last like big, big deal that happened at the trade deadline was Marcus Morris headed to the Clippers. And I have a small complaint about how this deal was reported. I like it. Let's hear I, it. I understand breaking news is hard. I totally get it. But Shams was reporting 
for about 45 minutes that Marcus Morris was going to the Clippers and that Mo Harkless was involved and then no other details. And then Woj came out with further details saying that Washington was involved, they were getting Jerome Robinson, and that Isaiah Thomas was headed to the Clippers. And then a half hour to 45 minutes after that, that's when you found out that in addition to the Clippers' 2020 first-round pick, the Knicks got Detroit's 2021 second-round pick, the rights to uh, Isof Sanan, and then 2021 first-round swap rights via the Clippers' top four protected. Just the, <laughs> That was more <laughs> of like the Clippers patting the Knicks on the head and saying, they're there, yes, you can have yeah. a swap. Like That's what that was. So I'd written my reaction as if the Knicks didn't get the Detroit um, pick or the swap rights. And so I had people were killing me on it, and I like right after it went live, and I didn't actually realize why, so I had to go back and redo it. So that was just my small complaint. However, <laughs> the details now that are uh, way to make it about you, right? First well, of all. that's all I care about is me. Yeah. Every every single thing is about me. Uh, the deal broken down in sum for each team: the Clippers get Marcus Morris, Isaiah Thomas, who they've since waived. Uh, the New York Knicks are getting Mo Harkless, a 2020 first-round pick from the Clippers, 2021 first-round pick swap rights with the Clippers, top four protected, Detroit's 2021 second-round pick, and the rights to Sanon. And then the Washington Wizards received Jerome Robinson. The Clippers are the clear mega winners of this deal, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, Morris sort of developed into the piece that every contender probably should have wanted, I think, was kind of the narrative that took hold, which makes it for good reason. Like he's shooting the shit out of the ball, which he's like almost 44 percent from deep this year. I don't think that's sustainable, Um, but he's a good three point shooter, I think. And in a catch and shoot role, if he's willing to accept that, I think it makes a ton of sense for the Clippers. He's a big body, another big wing defender. You can throw it whoever you happen to run into in a playoff series along with Leonard and George. Um, my only criticism is that I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that, 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 that another, you know, big wing slash power forward type was the Clippers greatest need. Um, so I, I still think they need a center that they feel comfortable closing with against the best teams. And I don't, maybe that's actually going to be Morris against all, but the, you know, teams with the biggest fives, but you know, I, I don't think Zubach is, is, really realistically playable against, you know, good playoff opponents. I think Harrell is fine as a bench guy. I don't trust him defensively enough to be on the floor at the end of, you know, really do or die games. Um, So I would have liked to see them seek somebody out, but then we've just spent this whole time saying how centers are worthless. So maybe that's not the best uh, approach. It just seemed like they had a bigger need than Morris will fill. That said, Morris for Harkless and and a pick, you know, some picks that aren't going to be all that great um, makes the Clippers significantly better. Um, and they kept the Lakers from getting Morris, which I think you can't discount. And I think the price was fair because what is a pick that would – it would be 27th if the draft was today. What does that mean in a shallow rookie class? And the, the other thing is that R- Jerome Robinson, for one, hasn't shown much in his NBA minutes – and then I also think you have to factor in that you could keep Marcus Morris. You don't have his bird rights, but he's making $15 million. So you could right. offer him, in theory, 120% of that in free agency. You shouldn't need that much money to keep Marcus Morris unless you're going on a super short-term contract. So mm-hmm. they can look at this as a long-term investment. That's why I like it even more from them. I echo what you said about his shooting, though. He does seem like one of those guys where if you remove his – volume of on-ball touches or if you if you shift it towards the lower end um, of the spectrum will he still be as good as a catch-and-shoot guy I honestly don't know but he's hitting 46 percent of his catch-and-shoot threes 
this year. And so you imagine that there's some sort of a balance to strike there. And like you said, someone else who could defend bigger wings probably get you coverage, you know, is switchable two, two through four, basically. And so I really feel like it's, I don't know why you wouldn't like this deal for the Clippers. And especially as you said, because they kept him away from not just the Lakers, but also the Bucks too. Right. Like that was a team I thought could have used him. There would have been a three for one deal. And that's something maybe the Knicks could lament is if they were a little bit more judicious with their roster spots, would that Indiana pick from Milwaukee have been on the table? Maybe that 10 spot, whatever difference it would have been, doesn't mean much in this draft class, but, but that would have been food for thought. And I think that's what also helps the Clippers come off looking super rosy here. Were you surprised the Bucks didn't do anything? Well, I was more surprised the Lakers didn't do anything. Mm, interesting. Why so? Just because they actually have glaring needs to fill. Where the Bucks is like, <laughs> Unlike this juggernaut Bucks who are yeah, perfect. <laughs> where it's like, oh, we saw Eric Bledsoe go cold the past two years. We should probably get another shot creator. Or we could really use another combo forward so that we look a lot better when we go small. Like The, the Bucks' shortcomings are more theoretical. Where the Lakers, it's, oh, their offense has been shit when Rondo and Davis play without LeBron yeah. James. We need to upgrade those minutes. It'd be nice to have some more shooters on the court. Um, another bigger wing defender because we really don't they, they really don't have one it's Kyle Kuzma and LeBron James when you just look at bigger wing defenders I know you have Danny Green but I think you'd rather put him I'm just saying theoretically on a point guard than a power forward you know what I'm starting to view the Lakers as as I'm in this mindset because I did the Bleacher Report's winners and losers thing which will go up eventually here um or it'll be up probably by the time anyone hears this but um so no Iguodala no Morris no changes at all to clear areas of need. Um, I, 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 I guess the Lakers kind of are, I don't know, are they losers in this, at this deadline? Like, did they, are we that concerned that are they not the second best team in the league anymore, which is what a lot of the numbers say, or, or are they, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. You'd think that, you know, the level of urgency considering LeBron's age, Anthony Davis's free agency um, should be pretty high. So it's interesting that they, you know, couldn't get anything done, especially since I still think the perception value-wise of Kuzma is fairly high around the league. I'm not a big fan, but you would think that they could have done something there. Yeah, there's I look, I don't look at them and I'm not necessarily any lower on their immediate outlook, but they felt like a team that needed to make a trade. I mean, they still have the fourth best record in the league against teams above 500. The problem is, is that they also trail the Clippers, Bucks, and Nuggets in that department. So two of those teams are considered their their biggest roadblocks to a title. And it's, I think I felt like they needed to do something. I'm just a little bit surprised that they didn't. Although there was the report from the LA times is I think it was, was Brad Turner or Brad Townsend. Maybe that was, excuse me, the Dallas morning news is Brad Townsend that said the Lakers had they gotten the deal for Marcus Morris had a trade lined up to send Danny green to the Mavs. And I don't know how much better you would be if you're replacing uh, Danny green with Marcus Morris and then whatever other stuff you're getting back. So I applaud yeah. them for not making a bad move, but I do think they needed to make a move. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. That's I I hadn't really given a lot of thought to the Lakers since they didn't do anything. But this is a, they may look back on this and kind of wish they'd done things differently. I think. Um, do you exactly. have any other? I, the, go ahead. The Kyle Kuzma stuff is interesting because I thought I came up with first of all I broke uh, my editor's brains at like super late at night on I think it was Tuesday night because I was I came up with some fake trades. And I, I came up with a stepladder one for the Lakers. It was a three-separate trade uh, stepladder deal that involved the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Detroit Pistons. And what the Lakers ended up giving up was Troy Daniels, Talon Horton Tucker, 
Kyle Kuzma, Andre Robertson, who they had gotten in a trade with the Thunder involving Quinn Cook and Cousins, two second round picks, and they got back Markeith Morris, Tony Snell, and Derrick Rose. And I got hammered <laughs> because people said that that was wet, not enough to get to get back in a deal for Kyle Kuzma, even though all three of those players could still be under contract next season. Both Morris and Snell have player options, and Rose is just on the books. So I don't know what to make of the Lakers' internal view of Kuzma. I don't think, if you just gave them all the salary fill in the world, I don't think he's good enough to anchor a blockbuster, like as the prospect centerpiece. And yet, it does seem like they're high enough on him where they weren't just going to trade him for a, a, a player based on fit rather than sheer like potential. This was like a matter of best player available, so it was Kuzma or someone who was a better fit for the roster, which might have been someone else. Yeah, I don't know. I, Kuzma's value, I think, is one of those things that has just been... I feel like from the moment he shot a, shot the lights out in summer league, just I never had a sense of of like why like what his actual value was because it was all over the place. Um, obviously, it wasn't that great, or they would have done something. Um, what else you got? I, do you want to talk about? Do you think uh, Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson the third like matter for the Sixers, or do you feel I'm I'm starting oh, to feel a little yeah. disappointed. You think they matter? Yeah, look, do you remember what happened with Marco Bellinelli and Ersan Ilyasova in the regular season when they got them? I think these are two guys who are, well, all right, I'll say Glenn Robinson is definitely plug and play. Yes. Uh, Alec Burks has always had this, like, weird struggle with striking a balance where when he was with the Jazz, he needed to deviate outside the offense to really hit his comfort zone. And so maybe that's the problem in Philly because he won't get those same off-the-dribble touches. At the same time, the, the Sixers do kind of have room for some secondary ball handling and Burks is shooting better than 37% on both his catch and shoot and pull up threes. So I think this is someone who helps you. And it made sense to get him and Glenn Robinson the third, because the Sixers were in this weird situation where it feels like they need to do something major. And yet whoever they acquired wasn't, if everything went according to plan, going to be a part of their closing lineup. So then what do you give up there? And I think yeah. that they did well to get two players who fit, but you don't need to justify giving a certain amount of playing time to, and didn't cost yeah. a lot. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, so I liked it for the Warriors, too, because I don't think either of those players had a future, especially since, you know, the, the Warriors were very limited in how much they were going to be able to pay both of them. Right. And if you're going to um, use your exception money to pay them, you could just do that anyway now. So Exactly. So so getting three future seconds, even though probably none of them will matter, that that's fine. And to, I guess I guess my it's slight disappointment um, from the Sixers side, just because. I kind of got I, I I got really psyched about this was never going to happen, but this the idea of Chris Paul or someone like that on the Sixers just really kind of took over my brain over the last few days. Even though obviously that was never going to happen, but but that's the type of thing I I felt like the Sixers needed more than guys that could you know score a little bit, catch and shoot, handle the ball a little bit. They just need a pick and roll guy. I think that that cuts the defense open and and kind of alleviates the spacing issues or can operate within them effectively, like someone like Paul could. But I I just think, so Burks and Robinson, I'm always skeptical of guys who are kind of on the verge of being out of the league and then look resurrected on a really bad team. Right. Um, it's a classic, like, somebody's got to score type of thing. And, you know, their efficiency, as you said, has been has been better than, than that type of player typically you'd expect. But I, I just wonder if, if the Sixers kind of, just didn't go far enough or if their confidence in the current core is maybe misplaced um, and they, they avoided doing something more drastic for that reason. Um, I think I, in answer to the question I asked you, I think they'll matter. I just am not convinced that 
this is something that, you know, really makes a meaningful difference in terms of the Sixers title hopes. I think they are what they are, are, are what they were before, which is like on a good day, the Sixers look like they can beat anyone, but on a bad day, anybody can beat them. So I don't know if this changes that. I think what it does is elevate their regular season ceiling, which I do think is important to keep up just the morale and momentum leading into the postseason. Because yeah, these that's guys a good point. aren't going to be on the floor when it matters, hopefully, in the playoffs. And maybe and if you can give your team just more confidence, or at least you don't have to deal with their dramatics if you look more balanced. It was kind of funny that they ended up giving James Ennis away to Orlando for basically nothing. Uh, he has not shot the ball well recently. He was definitely buried on the bench at this point, but there's still just something about a wing who can who can theoretically shoot for them. They They traded him away for nothing. And that's where I come back to with the Sixers, this it's become popular to say they need to trade Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons. And I do think that's a decision maybe one day they have to make, but why don't we try and surround them with players who complement both of them first? Like they've yet to assemble a team that makes sense around both Simmons or Embiid. You need, look, finding shooters who can defend is hard and who can also handle the ball. But like you, you got, you let one go in Jimmy Butler. I don't know what happened there. You decided to go with a dual big lineup in Horford and Embiid because you're probably worried about, Embiid's injuries and you wanted to make the Embiid list minutes easier that still feels like it should have cost less than nine figures over the next four years that's that's just me I just don't like the way they built this roster because I do still think that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid can work together if you put the type of talent around the two of them that such a duo would need and the Sixers just haven't done that yeah I think no matter what it's hard with those two and it's just it really is Simmons and I like Simmons I think he's become uh kind of he's gotten more heat than probably he deserves um, for his limitations, considering how much he actually does well. Um, it's just so I, I just, if you had like three JJ Reddicks, would it work? Like if they, if they, uh, with those, with Simmons and Embiid, I don't know. I, I still think that, you know, Maybe even one Landry Shamit, perhaps one land, one Landry Shamit would have made a lot of difference last year. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's they're They're going to be an interesting team to keep an eye on. Um, I'm kind of running out of, of trade. Trade ideas. You got any other ones you want to hit? I was going to just throw at you some teams that either should have done something that you Please were disappointed do. that didn't. Um, I mean, I'm going to start with the Knicks because, one, I, we didn't really talk about the return on Marcus Morris. I think we both agree that they did well in that trade. Yeah, right? that was actually pretty good for on their end. I agree. I still feel like there should have been some other moves made when you just look at this roster. You have Damian Dotson, Alonzo Trier are going to be free agents. You have all these veterans. You wouldn't have been able to move Bobby Portis, but could you have found a home for – Taj Gibson, could you have found a home for? There were rumors about Julius Randle leading into the trade deadline. Uh, could you have found a home for Alfred Payton? Was this the time, and maybe it wasn't because they didn't, would this have been the time to sell high on Kevin Knox? Should you just cut bait with Dennis Smith Jr.? I was really pulling for him to end up on the heat because I feel like they would have been a team that could reboot his value. I felt like they were a team that needed to do be more aggressive in terms of selling and amassing future assets for either the veterans they have or the future assets that really aren't assets at this point. It's kind of funny that I I felt like one of the things that like sort of the NBA consensus arrived at over the summer after the Knicks signed all these guys was that, you know, it's, it's a bad look that they basically telegraphed that they thought they were getting Durant and Irving. Um, so these are disappointing deals, but none of them are really crippling. Like, you, you know, cause they were short and they had all these non-guarantees and, and team options in Bobby Portis's case. Um, so in theory, those, those guys, Gibson, you know, Ellington, Peyton, whatever down the line, um, were all sort of palatable it seemed, but I think the deadline showed us that that was just not the case. And I think one thing we overrate or we, we maybe underrate 
is that you put a guy in a terrible situation where the team is losing and all his bad habits get reinforced and he just doesn't perform up to past you know levels, which happens with the Knicks because they're the Knicks, um, you lose value. And so I guess I am a little surprised or it would have been really surprising, say, you know, a few months ago, if you told me they only really swung one deal. Um, but based on how some of these guys have performed and the sort of lack of interest that that performance generated, it's actually not that weird to me that they couldn't find, you know, meaningful value for any of them. That makes sense. It's a little bit harder, I guess, for me to reconcile not seeing, and not in a bad way, but I was I was happy Oklahoma City didn't make a move. I wanted them to buy, which was never going to happen. But they didn't <laughs> sell, and that made me happy. I was interested to see if New Orleans was going to do anything, and I wasn't sure which way they would go. I think standing pat was probably on brand for where they're at in New Orleans, right? Yeah, I, I kind of thought that they just there's so much they don't know about their team, um, especially with Zion coming back, that it, it seems like, you know, they've played whatever 50 some odd games, I guess, at this point. Um, but they don't really know how the rotations are going to work or how, you know, who's a long termer and who's not. I think they have a pretty good idea. Like there's no question about Ingram, for example, now. Um, but but I think it, it was the smart move for them to just kind of let's use this these last couple of months of the season to sort of figure out or get a better idea, at least of what what we want to do going forward. So for, for them and okay, see, I was, I wasn't sure I, you could have, you could have told me the thunder would, would have, you know, blown it up. Um, I've, even though it never seemed to be trending that way, that just the pieces that they had and the, you know, this just ridiculous horde of draft picks, they had all these opportunities to do stuff. Um, I'm, I'm kind of more surprised the thunder didn't do anything. Um, but I don't even know if I'm surprised, uh, because they didn't buy or because they didn't sell because they just had that many options. I've become emotionally attached to the 2019-2020 Thunder. Hmm. Must, I, I like that. I bet that feels good. It does, especially because they stood pat at the trade deadline. Are you surprised that Dallas didn't do anything? It felt like there could have been something out there with the Courtney Lee and Golden State's second rounder. Yeah, I think, I, you know, so they they sort of had to address a problem they didn't anticipate with, with bringing in Willie Cauley-Stein um, way before the deadline uh, to replace Powell. But yeah, Courtney Lee, I don't know, I don't know what the point of having Courtney Lee on the roster is if you're not going to trade him because he's not playing and and that's kind of the right he's a decent number to get something back that you might actually use. Um it, maybe this is naive, but I always just in situations like this come back to like I guess nobody wanted him. I guess it just it just at that number it didn't make sense. There wasn't someone out there that was going to make the Mavs better. Um but but yeah, I guess I'm a little surprised they didn't do anything, but but considering you know, the, the obvious lack of uh, interest in Courtney Lee, maybe that shouldn't be a surprise. When you look at the players that these two teams could have sold, are you more surprised that Chicago or Phoenix didn't do anything? And I guess specifically I'm talking about in Phoenix, you have Dario Saric and Aaron Baines. If you want to throw Kelly Oubre Jr. in there because he sort of crawled into the rumor mill at the last second, you can. And then the Bulls, I thought they absolutely should have been, you know, they were really pushing Denzel Valentine to trade deadline. He, he, he drew league-wide interest and somehow didn't end up anywhere. Go, <laughs> go figure. But Thaddeus Young, Thomas Sadoransky, those were names. Ironically, I thought Thaddeus Young for Courtney Lee, and maybe not the Golden State pick, but Thaddeus Young to, to Dallas would have made sense. I thought Thomas, Thomas Sadoransky made a lot of sense for, for Philly. And it's not just that they weren't moved, but like the Bulls weren't even linked to really selling, nor were the Suns. Like they were involved in that Luke Kennard stuff and then the Kelly Uber Jr. stuff, but it was never really – oh, they're looking to sell Aaron Baines or seeing what they could get for Dario Sarch 
both those guys are going to be free agents this summer. Well, the fact that Ubre's name was really one of the only ones you saw even sort of partially hinted at as as I think it was I forget the phrasing, but it seemed like maybe it was it was like teams are interested in Kelly Ubre rather than the Suns are considering or shopping Kelly Ubre, um, which maybe that just doesn't mean anything because of course teams are interested in everybody. But I like I do feel like Dario Saric is not. I mean, obviously he's a free agent, but he's not uh, somebody that that the Suns envision being there long term. I just kind of feel like you know he doesn't fit. He hasn't really played that well. Um, and Baines, I feel like, is someone that there may have been some interested in, interest in, um, even though he's you know been kind of banged up. But um, I don't know who's who. I guess I, I'd flip the question. It, who who is going to turn around and trade an asset for Aaron Baines? Is that like a can the Celtics reacquire him? Is that is no, that allowed? No, I can't can, remember. Not this okay, because that would have made sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who's gonna who's interested in say Saric or Baines. It's willing to give something up that the Suns would want, especially since Phoenix. I I guess is still you know theoretically in the mix for for a playoff spot, which I which you you know seems like they're kind of interested in. Yeah, there's. I think. I'm more surprised the Suns didn't do anything, but more, I would say, frustrated that the Bulls didn't do anything because it, it just feels like, yeah, they're in the ninth seed, three and a half games out of the playoffs, but like they're just sort of fast-tracked to nowhere right now. I know they're dealing with a ton of injuries, but I, I would, it would have been, if you can get picks, uh, low-end first for Thomas Adoransky or seconds for him and Thaddeus Young, I, I thought they should have more aggressively pushed those pieces. I'm not saying now is the time to sell Lowry Marketing or anything like that, but it does feel like they should have been more aggressive in, in selling the the final two questions I have, they're kind of wrapped into one. So when you look at what um, let's start with the East, these teams did in the East, Toronto doesn't do anything. Boston doesn't do anything. Indiana doesn't do anything. Philly makes some small moves. Um, Miami gets Iguodala, Jay Crowder, Solomon Hill. Which team are you picking to finish with the second best record in the East right now? I kind of still think it's Toronto. So um, I think know, them, before the season, this isn't even a victory lap because I'm still way wrong. I said they might contend for fourth place in the East, and they're fucking <laughs> Which, second. Yeah, that would have been on the high end of projections, I'm sure, at that point. Um, yeah, no, the, Toronto's just really good, uh, and and I I'm kind of glad they didn't do anything. Just just they were why a team mess I want to this? buy as well. I want apparently I wanted everyone to be buyers. Oh yeah, well if anything buy, but but I just I, I don't know. I I guess I guess of those teams, you'd certainly say that Miami made the most meaningful changes. But even then, those, those changes feel more like playoff changes as opposed to, or changes that will impact the playoffs. Iguodala notoriously, you know, just kind of mails it in and then becomes really, really Ginobili good in the postseason. Um, but I, I guess, I guess the Heat move up somewhere in that order, but I don't think it's nearly enough to get up to get up to Toronto's level for, for number two in the East. I just, I like Toronto too much. I, I don't even know if the Heat are better. I love what the Heat did. I still don't know if they're better than the Celtics in the regular season because Jay Crowder might be one of the most overrated offensive players in the NBA. He's considered a floor spacer, but he's shooting about 32% from three over the past three seasons. And you have to survive these just off the dribble heat checks that are inexplicable. Like we're talking J.R. Smith yeah. level, inexplicable does kind of up their defensive optionality, but am, am I wrong to be concerned with the fact that Andre Drummond is 36, hasn't played in, in, in the NBA since June. And like, we're expecting him to really help the heat to the point where they, they already signed him for next season. No, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, not at all. It, because like he, he, he I, I would be really surprised if Iguodala made almost any difference in the regular season. I, it, to me, it's just, you know, Crowder Hill 
and Iguodala are three more guys that you can generally trust to make the right decision to hit an open three in theory um, and kind of they've got some heft on the wing or at the four to guard, you know, marquee opponents. That's kind of, that's, they're there for playoff stuff. Um, like Crowder, I wouldn't be surprised if he just didn't play very much. Really same for Hill. Um, and, and Iguodala, they're going to manage his minutes. You know that that was discussed in, in that negotiation because he just, he's a, he's a postseason guy at this stage of his career. He's been that way for a long time. So, um, and like, like you say, He's 36 with a ton of miles in recent years and definitely um, cannot sustain like his peak level of play over big samples of minutes. So so there's there's huge downside here. But like we talked about earlier, the Heat really didn't give up much to make this happen. Yeah. And it also wouldn't surprise me, by the way, if Jay Crowder ends up playing the best basketball of his career in Miami because it's Miami. You can never rule that out. They'll just get all these guys in crazy shape and, and they'll, they'll you know, turn into, you know, the versions of themselves that existed five years ago. Yeah, so I'm with you. I think the Raptors are two. This question is more fascinating to me, the final one. The race for the A spot in the West, I think, and I'll be a little bit generous here. I'll say we can write off the Timberwolves, Kings, and Warriors from the playoffs, which will leave the Pelicans, Suns, Spurs, Blazers, and Grizzlies. Knowing what happened at the trade deadline where the Grizzlies, I think you could pretty easily say, got worse. Yeah. Um, the Blazers didn't really do anything. I mean, their Ariza trade has helped them. They traded Scala BCA. Um, to Atlanta, they didn't do anything major. The Spurs never do anything. Pelicans didn't do anything. Suns didn't do anything. Who would be your pick to get that eighth spot now? Oh my god! I think like a, at least a week ago, I was on a radio show and I said the Pelicans, um, just because I you know they'd been playing so much better and getting Zion back. I think was going to make a difference, um, and they're getting healthier and, and all that stuff. But like. There's just kind of, even if they're potentially diminished, there's just something about the Grizzlies that feels like they're this year's plucky, ahead of schedule upstart. Um, and I mean, that's easy to say because they're whatever they were in January, like 11 and three or 12 and four or something ridiculous. Like they've, the results have been on the floor and they don't seem very fluky based on some of the advanced numbers that I've looked at. Um, so I guess the safest bet to me is probably to say Memphis is going to keep that spot, but I still I still like New Orleans, even though they're next to Phoenix as being the farthest out of that spot. Um, I just there's just a lot of talent on the Pelicans, and I have trouble getting over that. For me, with the Grizzlies though, it's Jay Crowder was their fourth most played player this season. Solomon Hill was eighth in total minutes, and you got back players who, you know, Gorgie Jang he'll play some I don't know how much and then when will Justice Winslow return they're already getting rid of waiters I just feel like they took a substantial hit maybe if Winslow comes back immediately and he's just healthy I could see them holding on to a spot but I'm almost inclined to go with and I'm not almost inclined I'm going to go with the Blazers or Spurs and I lean a little bit more towards the Blazers uh, even though I picked the Spurs to make the playoffs at the start of the season I really wanted the Pelicans to get in they do have the easiest schedule remaining but to make up six losses yeah, it, or six games in the loss column, excuse me, with both Portland and San Antonio in front of you, it feels undoable. I could see them finishing with a better record than the Grizzlies at this point, but to also leapfrog the Spurs and Blazers feels like it's asking a lot. Yeah, I mean, they got to go like 21 and 10 to get to 500, which is a, which may not be enough to do it. So it's definitely a long shot for the Pelicans. I just, I just like, I just, I don't know, maybe it's because I want to watch them play more that I'm hoping it's them. Yeah, I, I'm, I would be 
surprised if it's them. I would be at this point just as surprised if it was the Grizzlies, though, after making this trade. And if it is the Grizzlies, and if they somehow finish over 500 in the process, Taylor Jenkins probably deserves even more Coach of the Year love. Yeah, I think that's right. And and like, look, whatever happens with the Grizzlies, huge. It's a this year is a win, like capital W win, because that that young core is it's there. We know what it is. Um, I think you know everybody realizes this. Making the playoffs this year is not remotely important to what potentially this th- this core could do. You know, for the next you know four, five, six years. Yeah, I'm totally with you, uh, Grant. Thank you as always for for giving me your time. Uh, if you guys want to follow Grant on Twitter, and, and you absolutely should, you can find him at GT underscore Hughes. Again, he is a national NBA writer for Bleacher Report and now a good friend of mine. Grant, I will be pestering you again in the future as always. It was fun talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.